Sir Roger Moore was born 14th of October 1927 and passed away on the 23rd of May 2017, almost exactly three years ago. Moore was a long-time favourite of mine, but not only because of his performances. I liked Roger Moore. He seemed like a genuinely nice, funny and approachable guy with a neat line in self-deprecating humour and a slight edge of sadness about his career. Despite the fame and money and the undoubted benefits of same, on the rare occasion Moore let his guard down, I always got the impression Sir Roger felt his talents as an actor were underappreciated. Over his long and distinguished career, he felt one of the few times he was genuinely allowed to act was in the little seen but critically acclaimed 1970 movie The Man Who Haunted Himself. It doesn't help that his career has almost singularly become identified with James Bond, despite working extensively beforehand on both sides of the Atlantic. His first starring role was as Ivanhoe, before joining Maverick as Brett Maverick's British cousin, Bo Maverick. He starred in numerous movies before landing his big break as Leslie Charteris, The Saint. The Saint, a.k.a. Simon Templer, is a conspicuously wealthy man who has nothing else to do other than wander around in the most glamorous locations on the planet helping people. I can't determine why he does this, and having written this show, I'm still not sure. Nevertheless, The Saint was inordinately successful, running for six seasons and 117 episodes, some of which were edited into movies for overseas and cinematic release. Roger Moore was a debonair, suave and erudite man, and this bled over into his characters. Nowhere is this more apparent than in The Saint. Moore always seemed like a man out of time, like he was preserved in amber in the 1950s, a trait that served him well here, a show that, despite being made from 1962 to 1969, seems from a much earlier era. I've been catching a few episodes of The Saints on early morning reruns, and it offers up the kind of simple but enjoyable entertainment, sadly lacking a lot of mainstream television nowadays. It's formulaic and predictable, yes, but it's undeniably pleasant. Every episode begins with Templar arriving, wherever the hell he is this week. He gets into trouble, delivers a voiceover or monologue to camera, looks up, and a halo appears over his head. Cue credits. over-egg the pudding somewhat there at the end, don't they? The House on Dragon's Rock was one of the episodes I caught, and it is apparently from season six of the show. It's an episode with an intriguing pedigree. Not only is it directed by Moore himself, but it originally aired in a much later time slot than usual, with a viewer's discretion advised warning. 
Rather than Monaco or some other exotic location, Simon Templer finds himself located in the far less salubrious Port Talbot in North Wales, the fictional town of Alanfertraws Sicknant, to be exact. There's a nice little gag here about Welsh places being improbably difficult to pronounce. He's here at the invitation of Dr Davis to investigate some bizarre occurrences, including ten-ton tractors being tossed aside and shepherds being discovered with lacerations and suddenly being rendered mute with shock. Simon ingratiates himself in with the locals and starts to investigate the strange goings-on. Written by Harry Junkin from the original Leslie Charteris story, The Man Who Liked Ants, this is apparently an atypical and offbeat episode of The Saint. Whereas Templar normally frequents some really exotic location and typically engages in spy, espionage-like shenanigans, this episode sees Templar venture into the science fiction escapades of Frankenstein or the island of Dr. Moreau. His investigations lead him to Dr. Sarden at the nearby Margam Castle, a real-life location used in Doctor Who, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased and many other shows of the time. Sardin is a typical mad scientist type who believes that the march of science is worth a few dead bodies. What Templar finds is more akin to the 50s horror flick Them, as Port Talbot suddenly finds itself awash with giant ants. Sir Roger is in full command, though, using his indisputable laid-back charm and easygoing nature to comfort guest star of the week Annette Andre in her fifth different appearance on the series, and we, the audience. It's all wonderfully executed hokum, with Sardin's lab looking like the workspace of every mad lunatic who ever worked a test tube. Sardin is played with an ice-cool detachment by Anthony Bate, and let's be honest, it all pans out exactly as we sophisticated 21st century hipsters would expect, with Sardin executing his aide, who starts to get cold feet about the whole thing, before Templar, aided by Sardin's niece, the aforementioned Annette Andre, sorts it all out. The FX budget wouldn't allow for the giant ants getting out and tromping all over the Welsh countryside, so they obediently stay stuck in the caves. Although, as with all stories of this nature, the creator has to find himself killed by his own creation, and the ants duly oblige, killing Dr Sardin and nearly offing our hero. After getting stuck in the caves himself, Simon fires a few well-placed shots at the cave mouth, crushing the giant ants in the ensuing avalanche. He and Andre follow a stream and emerge dusty but unharmed. Given that no internet existed back in 1969, I can't help but wonder what the regular viewers of The Saint thought of this episode. It's not as off-piste as the black-and-white episodes of The X-Files, musical episodes of Buffy, animated episodes of Supernatural, or even the wackier episodes of The Prisoner, but it must have been a change of pace for them. It's like if EastEnders did an episode about time travel. It's certainly light-years away from what I remember of the show. I also must confess my lack of knowledge of the saint had me wondering what he is exactly. Everyone in the village seems to know him, implying a level of fame, but he doesn't seem to be a PI or mercenary as he takes no money for the job. He's more Cary Grant than James Bond, exuding an upper-class charm and sophisticated ur, but he doesn't seem to be a government agent, nor does he seem to have the vices that Bond has. He doesn't seem to drink a lot, nor does he hit on every woman available, and there's more than a touch of raffles to him if Raffles solved crimes instead of committing them. He comes across as a lot more of a gentleman than a secret agent or thuggish gun for hire. Templar is more suave than that. But this one episode didn't give me any real clue to what exactly he was other than suave. I felt another episode was needed to better understand who Templar was and what he did. 
I was limited to the episode shown in the last couple of weeks on the ITV catch-up hub, so I chose The Ex-King of Diamonds, written by John Cruz and directed by Alvin Rakoff. The episode is back to being amongst the jet set, taking place in the Côte d'Azur. Well, it was set in the Côte d'Azur, but actually filmed on the studio backlot. The episode has a different theme. change the opening title theme this close to the end of the show, but what do I know? In the cold open, Templar picks up a car outside the hotel, where he is recognised as the famous Simon Templar, which doesn't enlighten me as to what he's famous for. Templar has been invited to a party also being attended by Texan oil magnate Rod Houston, played by ITC renter yank Stuart Damon, better known for the champions. The first encounter sees Houston challenge Templar to a race and a gentleman's wager, after Templar's classic roadster cuts up his Mustang. Of course, Templar outthinks Houston, spotting a motorcycle cop up ahead, and with Houston out of the game, Templar easily wins the race. After the usual sexist shenanigans with both men fighting over the same woman, it turns out they have both been invited to take part in the King's Abacarat competition. The King, Boris, played by Willoughby Goddard, has been deposed. It turns out King Boris is financing a revolution by cheating at cards. His plan is to win several million dollars at the casino in Monte Carlo, but he's not leaving any of it to chance. Rather, he's devised an ingenious method of cheating. The only possible problem is brilliant French mathematician Henry Flambeau, played by Ronald Ratt, who knows all the odds when it comes to games of chance, and by pure fluke, it was his daughter Templar and Houston hit on earlier in the day. It turns out Flambeau is in financial trouble, and losing big in the game costs him, even though he knows there has to be cheating going on. It's up to the saint to step in and save Flambeau and his daughter from financial ruin and prevent King Boris from winning. This episode is a bit more Bondian, taking place entirely in a casino, and clearly Damon is supposed to be the American opposite of Templar. Another phenomenally rich man for whom money is not the prime motivator, but who loves adventure and danger. Based on these two episodes, I still have no idea how the saint got his money, but he's evidently a man of bottomless wealth. Unlike Templar, Houston also takes himself very seriously, and came across as a tad overbearing and charmless. Compare Damon to Roger Moore, and I can see why the latter became a big star. Moore effortlessly charming, handsome and confident, but with a self-deprecating way about him that makes us like him even more. A guy as smart, capable and unflappable as Simon Templar could be unbearably smug, bringing me back to Damon's take on Houston. But Moore avoids being smarmy and clearly has an overabundance of self-awareness, knowing just how to pitch his performance. It's also interesting to compare Sir Roger here to his most famous role, that of James Bond. He's a lot bigger here, more barrel-chested and broad-shouldered than he is as Bond, and he's offering up a completely different performance. His Bond is harsher than Templar, albeit not as harsh as Connery's, but it's interesting to compare the two, given how much flack Sir Roger has taken over the years for his alleged one-note eyebrow acting. 
both of these episodes are prime slices of 60s ITC high adventure spy drama. There's a feeling that we're not supposed to take any of this too seriously. It's all hokum. But it's hokum of the highest order and pure entertainment. Personally, I preferred The House on Dragon's Rock, but I suspect that's more in my ballywick as a fan of schlock sci-fi. The ex-King of Diamonds was just as fun, but the relationship between Damon and Moore just wasn't there. And as such, as a two-hander, this lagged a bit. However, I did learn that this episode of The Saint was an idea in search of a place to land. The basic premise, aristocratic, unflappably cool Brit and self-made, rough-around-the-edges American, was a dummy run for Sir Roger's next TV project. The Persuaders. Nineteen seventy one's The Persuaders saw Sir Roger team up with Tony Curtis for another globe trotting action adventure series. In this he played Lord Brett Sinclair, an entitled, fabulously wealthy aristocrat and former race car driver, who found himself forced into partnership with Danny Wilde, former Brooklyn Wide Boy made good thanks to shrewd oil investments. The Persuaders capitalises on Curtis and Moore's star power, and in fact doesn't even bother crediting them with their full names. Created by Robert S. Baker, who worked with Moore on The Saint, the pilot, entitled Overture, was written by the Avengers guru Brian Clemens and directed by Basil Dearden. Moore also had a stake in the show as producer, as he had with The Saint, and also provided the clothes. These canny investments in the shows he worked on were financially lucrative for Moore over the years. The opening is a massively overcompensating look at the playboy lifestyles of the two protagonists, in which they ride private jets, race speed cars, gamble and frolic, both at the gaming tables and in the bedroom, for now, for now. The cars reflect their personalities. Danny drives a brash red Ferrari Dino 246 GT, and Brett an elegant and classy Bahama yellow Aston Martin DBS. As with the ex-King of Diamonds, the setting is the Côte d'Azur, but unlike the ex-King of Diamonds, this is shot entirely on location in France, and boy does the production want you to know it. Danny's seduction technique is a little creepy by today's standards. He thinks if you yammer constantly about yourself, stand too close to the women you're eyeing up and made lewd comments, ladies will just fall into your lap. Brett, by contrast, is a little more sophisticated, preferring to at least buy a lady a drink first. 
Both men meet on the road, as they did in the Ex-King of Diamonds, wave their dicks around as they try to outrace each other, as they did in the Ex-King of Diamonds, and then arrive at a five-star hotel. I don't have to tell you that this was as with the King of Diamonds, do I? Where both men have been invited by an unknown individual. Their antagonism spills over into the bar, where they get into a comedic brawl. As per the contracts of the big-name stars, they both get in the same number of punches. They are arrested and delivered to a retired judge named only Fulton, played by Lawrence Naismith. Fulton offers them a choice. Spend 90 days in jail for the barbarol, or help him find a particular girl for reasons of his own. If they do, Fulton will drop the charges. Begrudgingly, Wilde and Sinclair agree. After the case is solved, Fulton says he has many more like it. People who just got away from him on technicalities. He offers Danny and Brett a reason for living, instead of just whoring their way around romantic locations, drinking champagne and spending money. So basically, it's Hardcastle and McCormick, but 15 years earlier. The Persuaders tries a little bit too hard in places. The comedy is a little too broad and... The show is much funnier in its smaller gags. Roger Moore's way with an eyebrow and a facial expression is much funnier than the laboured barbrawl scenes. In fact, one of the funniest gags in the show works because we in the audience react exactly the same as the characters. Throughout the show, Judge Fulton has been in a wheelchair. When we return to him later, he casually gets out of the chair and pours Danny and Brett a drink. Moore and Curtis's double take is perfectly timed to the audience, in this case me, who did exactly the same thing at exactly the same time. The plot is very similar to the ex-King of Diamonds. In fact, the opening scenes are beat for beat identical, as is the setup of the partnership and relationship between Danny and Brett, although actually being shot on location sets all this up far better than the backlots and rear projection of the saint. The Persuaders, though, takes a different swerve at the midway point to set up a different show. But the main difference is Moore and Curtis. Despite having never met before this, the two actors have a far more electrifying chemistry together than Moore did with Damon. Like Moore, Curtis has a clearly defined self-mocking streak and is capable of sending himself up when necessary, despite him obviously having the ego the size of a small moon. There are numerous reports of onset difficulties, with Curtis disagreeing with directors and guests like Joan Collins, who said he was a problem. When Joan Collins is saying you're a problem, there's a problem. There were even rumours that Moore and Curtis didn't get along, as, as Moore's work ethic was strict. He liked to show up, know his lines, do his job, have a good time doing it, and go home, whereas Curtis was apparently more of a prima donna. In later years, though, both men professed admiration for each other, with Moore admitting the show worked as well as it did because of Curtis, and Curtis saying he would quite happily have worked with Sir Roger again. Moore is also quite short-tempered as Brett, far quicker to anger than either the saint or Bond. As Moore is too unflappable to remain angry for long, he quickly gets over it, but maybe his own feelings about Curtis mirror his character. The Persuaders is massive fun, Curtis and Moore work very well together, irrespective of any alleged off-screen animosity, and this inaugural episode moved along at a decent speed. One of the issues with any old TV show is that they are quite slow by today's standard, passing by like moving wallpaper or a radio play with pictures, and as such it can sometimes be a slog to watch. Even the good stuff often moves with the speed of an old woman crossing the street. The Persuaders, though, gambled along. 
As I've said, some of the gags don't land, but the ones that do, such as Brett taking delight that they have been locked in the wine cellar, are genuinely funny. The location photography is stunning, and a far cry from the standard ITC process of passing the backlot at Boreham Wood offers somewhere remote. Other episodes I caught were just as fun. One, the old, the new and the deadly, saw a case of mistaken identity land Danny in the sights of a Nazi war criminal and emphasised how much of a dick Danny could be. He ends up being punched repeatedly at the end, and deservingly so, for kissing the wife of another man repeatedly in front of her husband, and said man eventually has enough and decks him. Patrick Troughton gives a nice performance as the Nazi, a far cry from Doctor Who. As with the time tunnel last time, The Persuaders is a throwback. There's no political commentary or lecturing, no subtext at all, in fact. All of that has its place, but I find that I'm wanting nothing but diverting entertainment at the moment. In that regard, The Persuaders fits the bill nicely. Sadly, the one place in the world where The Persuaders wasn't successful was the very market it was made for, the USA. Everywhere else in the world, the show was a massive hit. As such, there was a small lag in between the completion of season one and what would have been the start of season two. And in that lag, Sir Roger took on the role of Bond. The success of the show elsewhere in the world meant the second season was mooted without more, but with Rex Harrison's son taking over. However, the producers decided it was Curtis and Moore together that made the show work. And as such, they called it a day. The cost of the series, around £100,000 an episode, nearly £2 million in today's money, may have had some burring on the decision. It was also coming upon the end of an era. The final chapter of the extravagant story of ITC and the larger-than-life adventure serials was underway. Weep not for Sir Roger, though. He took his wit, urbane charm and exquisite fashion sense with him to the largest movie franchise in the world. As Ian Fleming's James Bond more made seven movies over 12 years. He's no longer the longest-serving Bond, Daniel Craig has since eclipsed him, but I doubt any future Bond will equal his output. For me, Sir Roger's Bond films are simply good entertainment, even the bad ones. To be fair to him, he wasn't comfortable playing the ruthless sociopathic killer, and as such, Moore's Bonds are watered down a bit. But they're still a jolly good night at the cinema. Of his particular brand of Bond, Moore said, I was the fourth best James Bond, a typically self-deprecating quote, but also representative of his wit. He needn't be so, for no one could have played the kind of Bond he played as well as he did. Certainly no one played the saint as well as he, and would Tony Curtis's obnoxiousness have been better tempered by anybody else? Truly, nobody did it better. I didn't recognise you with the clothes on. You are very suspicious, Mr. Bond. Oh, I find I live much longer that way. Nobody does it better. Makes me feel sad for the rest. Nobody does it half as good as you. Thank you.
What do you think you're doing? Keeping the British hand up, sir. And that about wraps it up for this episode. Our lone email tonight comes from Benjamin Perlman. Hello, Benjamin. Hello, Mr. Leyland. Oh, no need to be so formal here, Benjamin. I hope that you and your family are safe and healthy through all this. I wanted to thank you for all your work on all your podcasts. I enjoy them very much. Well, thank you, Ben. We are. We're doing all right, mostly. And thank you for uh, the praise. It's always nice to receive praise, isn't it? Stuck at home, I finally have the time to catch up on your episodes I missed, especially from Palace of Glittering Delights. I can't wait to listen to your thoughts on the time tunnel. I always enjoyed the show and sorry they didn't get a second season. However, 30 episodes for one season is nothing to sneeze at. I always look at the ending of the last episode where they jump back to the first episode as meaning that they are lost and stuck in a time loop. That's, yeah, that's correct. I mean, presumably, the last episode, as Ben points out, does end with them leaping back onto the deck of the Titanic, implying that the whole thing just begins again and it's a circle, an endless circle that Tony and Doug are trapped in. Uh, Obviously, it was to go into summer reruns, I presume but it does give that impression that the show just goes on this constant loop of 30 adventures. You've got to feel a bit sorry for him. It's a bit like Groundhog Day. Anyway, Ben continues. I also wanted to comment on your episode of By Any Other Name. You mentioned that when you watched the episode when you were younger, you would have bet anything that the girl would have survived and the security guard would be crushed and were surprised when the opposite was true. I just wanted to say I have seen this episode so many times over the years and each time I watch it, I think the girl will survive. For some reason, it always gets me. Can't explain it. I think that's because we're, we're so used to the trope of saving the girl. Um, and that men are expendable, especially security guards on Star Trek. So the fact that they saved the guy, and a black guy at that, let's not forget that, um, and the girl died, was genuinely shocking. But I also think, as well, Shatner sells it. Shatner sells the remorse. See, everyone always likes to play up the red shirts dying like he didn't care. He did. He cared about every single one of them that died. Anyway, Ben continues. Please keep safe, and I look forward to the next episode, Ben Perlman. Well, you're very welcome, Ben. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I hope you enjoyed the Time Tunnel episode. If you want to be like Ben, 
You can email me on heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. The next episode is already written, just not recorded. And we'll be wrapping up Stanley's run on The Amazing Spider-Man with the final issues of his regular run, which is 105 through 110. There will be an epilogue to the Stanley run on Spider-Man, where I'll be looking at issues that he did subsequent to completing his regular run. But in the first instance, this is it. This is the end. Every single issue. I've covered the lot. From Amazing Fancy 15 through to Amazing 105. And next time, that journey ends. Join me, won't you? Ta-da!